friends. My name is Zach Allen. I'm the lead pastor at Grace Church of Alma, Arkansas, a church for the curious and bored where we focus on trying to learn how to do the kinds of things that Jesus did and said to do, located in the ruralish Arkansas River Valley. Well, summer is officially here, so I hope you are making plans and arrangements to enjoy it with your family and friends. But do yourself a favor and don't neglect your spiritual self in this season. I know you may be itching to make up for the summer we lost back in 2020. I feel the same way, for real. But wherever you call your home church, I hope you'll make it a point to stay connected when you're in town. When you're not, I hope this podcast comes in handy for you. At the very least, you can have something to chew on and ponder in your downtime. So our scripture reading today is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're looking at verses 4 through 20. Reading from the message today, it goes like this. Fed up. All the elders of Israel got together and confronted Samuel at Ramah. They presented their case. Look, you're an old man and your sons aren't following in your footsteps. Here's what we want you to do. Appoint a king to rule us, just like everybody else. When Samuel heard their demand, give us a king to rule us, he was crushed. How awful. Samuel prayed to God. God answered Samuel, go ahead and do what they're asking. They are not rejecting you. They've rejected me as their king. From the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day, they've been behaving like this, leaving me for other gods. And now they're doing it to you. So let them have their own way. But warn them of what they're in for. Tell them the way kings operate, just what they're likely to get from a king. So Samuel told them, delivered God's warning to the people who were asking him to give them a king. He said, This is the way the kind of king you're talking about operates. He'll take your sons and make them soldiers of them, chariotry, cavalry, infantry, regimented in battalions and squadrons. He'll put some to forced labor on his farms, plowing and harvesting, and others to making either weapons of war or chariots in which he can ride in luxury. He'll put your daughters to work as beauticians and waitresses and cooks. He'll conscript your best fields, vineyards, and orchards and hand them over to his special friends. He'll tax your harvests and vintage to support his extensive bureaucracy. You'll prize workers and your best animals he'll take for his own use. He'll lay a tax on your flocks and you'll end up no better than slaves. The day will come when you will cry out in desperation because of this king you so much want for yourselves. But don't expect God to answer. But the people shouldn't, the people wouldn't listen to Samuel. No, they said, we will have a king to rule us. Then we'll be just like all the other nations. Our king will rule us and lead us and fight our battles. So our passage began with the words, fed up. I wonder what's going on there. So to kick things off, let's take a step back to look at some backstory, uh, just in case you aren't familiar with it. In 1 Samuel 1, all the way back in the first chapter, starting in verse 1, it goes like this. There was once a man who lived in Ramathaim. He was descended from the old Zoo family in the Ephraim Hills. His name was Elkanah. He was connected with the Zeus from Ephraim through his father Jeroam, his grandfather Elihu, and his great-grandfather Tohu. He had two wives. It's never a good idea. The first was Hannah. The second was Penina. Penina had children. Hannah did not. In verse 6, but her rival wife taunted her cruelly, rubbing it in and never letting her forget that God had not given her children. 
This went on year after year. Every time she went to the sanctuary of God, she could expect to be taunted. Hannah was reduced to tears and had no appetite. Her husband Elkanah said, Oh, Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? And why are you so upset? Am I not of more worth to you than ten sons? So what is the source of Hannah's distress here? I don't think it's just her barrenness, right? It's not just the lack of a son. It's part of it. But Hannah, she's being bullied. She's tormented. Could she have been okay? Should she have been okay with only her husband? In other words, could she, in the midst of her despair, simply changed her focus? You've heard that advice before, right? You're, you're just focusing on the wrong thing. Why don't you just try to look at this from a different perspective? You should really count your blessing. There's starving kids in Africa, you know. And none of that is necessarily wrong or even bad advice, but it isn't terribly helpful in the moment either. So perhaps she could have been, but this is her situation. This is her agony. And so in verse 9, so Hannah ate, then she pulled herself together, slipped away quietly, and entered the sanctuary. The priest Eli was on duty at the entrance to God's temple in the customary seat. Crushed in soul, Hannah prayed to God and cried and cried inconsolably. Then she made a vow. O God of the angel armies, if you'll take a good hard look at my pain, if you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son, I'll give him completely, unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy discipline. In verse 13, Hannah was praying in her heart silently. Her lips moved, but no sound was heard. So Hannah is bullied, and it also seems she is ashamed. You get the gist, she sees herself as defective. She calls out to God, but she does not want to be overheard by Eli, the priest, who happened to be sitting at the doorpost nearby. Uh, So she prays in silence. And Eli, observing her mouth moving, but not hearing anything, makes the assumption that Hannah was drunk. Evidently, these sorts of silent prayers weren't the norm. And so he says to her in verse 14, You're drunk! How long do you plan to keep this up? Sober up, woman. More shame for Hannah. And and from the priest, no less. From a religious leader making assumptions. But Hannah, she responds with her truth. She says, oh no, sir, please. I'm a one woman broken hearted. I haven't been drinking, not a drop of wine or beer. The only thing I've been pouring out is my heart, pouring it out to God. Don't for a minute think I'm a bad woman. It's because I'm so desperately unhappy And in such pain that I've stayed here so long, Eli answered her, go in peace and may the God of Israel give you what you have asked of him. Think well of me and pray for me, she said, and went her way. Then she ate heartily and her face was radiant. And in due time, Hannah bore a son and she named him Samuel. And as soon as Samuel was weaned, Hannah took him to the temple, made a sacrifice and prayed this. Excuse me, sir, would you believe that I'm the very woman who was standing before you at this very spot praying to God? I prayed for this child, and God gave me what I asked for, and now I have dedicated him to God. He's dedicated to God for life. And then she left him there for the Lord, left him in the Lord's service under the care of Eli, the priest who shamed her. I'm not going to dig too much into Hannah's story here. It it does go on, and it's a whole message in itself, really, but we're just painting some, some background for now. 
So in chapter 2, verse 12, Eli's, that's the same priest, Eli's own sons were nothing but trouble. They didn't know God and could not have cared less about the customs of priests among the people. And a prophecy was delivered against his house and that God would raise up for himself a faithful priest. And then in chapter 3, the Lord begins to speak to young Samuel. Samuel hears his name spoken and runs to Eli, assuming it was his master. Three times this happened, and Eli tells Samuel that the Lord is speaking to him. So the fourth time, Samuel responds to God and receives this word. Listen carefully. I'm getting ready to do something in Israel that is going to shake everyone up and get their attention. The time has come for me to bring down on Eli's family everything I warned him of. Every last word of it. I'm letting him know that the time's up. I'm bringing judgment on his family for good. He knew what was going on and that his sons were desecrating God's name and God's place, and he did nothing to stop them. This is my sentence on the family of Eli. The evil of Eli's family can never be wiped out by sacrifice or offering. So this word, uh, as you might expect, made Samuel very nervous. Uh, but Eli insisted Samuel share what he had received, and Eli responds, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And these strike me as the bitter words of a man who was well aware of his sin. Anyway, Samuel continued to grow and minister, and all Israel came to know him as a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. So in chapters 4 through 7, the Philistines began to move in on the people of Israel. Israel was defeated, the ark was stolen, Eli's sons were killed as prophesied, and Eli himself at the sound of this news fell over, broke his neck, and died at 98 years old. The presence of the ark in the land of the Philistines was uh, wrecking havoc and so it was eventually returned. I think it was about seven months. And Samuel instructed Israel to put away their foreign gods, the idols, direct their hearts to the Lord and that he would deliver them from the Philistines. The Philistines heard Israel had gathered together there with Samuel again and moved against them. But this time the Lord led Israel to victory and a long time of peace ensued. But then in chapter 8, where our reading began this morning, starting in verse 1, when Samuel got to be an old man, he set his sons up as judges in Israel. But his sons didn't take after him. They were out for what they could get for themselves, taking bribes, corrupting justice. And our passage that we just read, beginning in verse 4, starts here. Fed up, all the elders of Israel got together and confronted Samuel at Ramah. They presented their case. Look, you're an old man, and your sons aren't following in your footsteps. Here's what we want you to do. Appoint a king to rule us, just like everybody else, just like the other nations. Suddenly, that fed up, those two words we started with, carries a lot more weight, doesn't it? There's a lot going on here, and the fear is palpable. So now we can get to the meat of this message. Eli and his wicked sons had resulted in Israel being defeated by the Philistines. We've just had a long time of peace with Samuel at the helm, but now again you are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Samuel's wicked sons are acting just like Eli's wicked sons. Samuel is old, just like Eli was old. 
in the mind of Israel, it seems, were about to get walloped by the Philistines again. Now, notice where the faith is placed in the righteousness of Eli or Samuel and their sons. It's misplaced, right? So anyway, this isn't working. What we need is a king, a king to govern us. And note, like everyone else, like the other nations. And notice also the reason God makes plain to Samuel. They've rejected me as their king. From the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day, they've been behaving like this, leaving me for other gods. So Samuel speaks to Israel again with what could pass for a modern-day libertarian anti-government speech. He says he'll take your sons and make them soldiers. And he'll put some to forced labor, plowing his fields. He'll put your daughters to work as beauticians and waitresses and so on. Uh, he'll take your best fields and your vineyards and orchards and hand them over to his special friends. He'll tax your harvests. He'll tax your vintage. He'll lay a tax on your flocks. You'll end up no better than slaves. You'll cry out to God and he won't hear you. In short, you want to have a king like everyone else, like the other nations, but here's what it's going to cost you. This king you choose for yourself will take, 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 take. The people, though, refused to listen to Samuel and said, no, we will have a king to rule us then we'll be just like all the other nations. Our king will rule us and lead us and fight our battles. The people of Israel wanted so desperately in this moment to be like other nations, to be like everyone else. This reminds me of a story about my wife, Kristen. Uh, her mom, when she was a child, when Kristen was a child, her mom would bake bread. And uh, when Kristen would take her lunch to school, uh, she would have a sandwich with her mom's special homemade bread. But Kristen, when she would look around at uh, the other children with their plain white bread, she notices that her her bread looks different, right? As a child, she didn't really know how good she had it because let me tell you, that bread is delicious. So Kristen didn't know how good she had it. She just wanted to be like everyone else. She wanted that wonder bread, right? But think about this. From Genesis through Ruth, we read of a God naming and calling people to himself. They weren't seeing how good they could have it. They refused to see their guilt in turning to other gods. From from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, from Moses to Joshua to the judges, we see God forming a people to not be like everyone else, to not be like other nations, but to be a holy and called out nation set apart to the work of the Lord to ultimately be a blessing to all other nations. But time and again, Israel struggles to shake off the influence of those other nations. As God says to Samuel in this passage, from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day, they've been behaving like this, leaving me for other gods. Being like other nations, like everyone else, has been their constant temptation. And here it comes to a head with a rejection of the God who calls them unique, of the God who calls them his own. 
It seems they had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten whose they were. So what is Israel's desire for a king in rejection of God to, and to be like other nations have to do with us? Well, like Israel, God has named those in Christ the ecclesia, the called out ones, set apart and unique for a holy purpose. Peter, talking about this reality in the second chapter of the first letter, which bears his name, says it this way in verses 9 through 10. But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you, from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. But like Israel, this temptation to be like other nations, to be like everyone else, to cling to the ways of the world from which we've been called and set apart is ever-present and quite strong, isn't it? One of the most pernicious areas this shows up is in the realm of politics, which shouldn't surprise us since we've just read a passage about Israel's desire for a king. It is political, I'm not talking Democrat versus Republican, though, or even Libertarian or any other particular ideology for that matter. I'm not talking about whether or not you should favor this or that platform or this or that candidate. I really, truly don't care who you voted for or who you will vote for. Most of those things have their merits, their pros and cons. And if you're going to vote, you should vote your conscience as a thoughtful extension of your with God-shaped life of faith. So long as you understand that not everyone embodying this kind of life will come to your same conclusions. But anyway, I'm not talking about any of that. What I'm talking about is this thing we saw in Israel in 1 Samuel 8. I'm talking about character expressed in conduct. I'm talking about living by faith and trust. I'm talking about remembering who you are and whose you are. So Israel's hopes were meant to be with God But there was a consistent turning away, a rejection of God towards the idols and ways of the other surrounding nations to be like other nations, like everyone else. All their hopes and fears bottled up and projected onto a man. Whether we're talking about Eli, Samuel, or a future king instead of God. And this character, this lack of faith and lack of trust is borne out in behavior. The behavior betrays the inner life. And when you look around at the hostility we currently live in, it isn't difficult to see this same sort of thing playing out. All our hopes and fears and desires and yearning bottled up and projected onto a man or a woman, one who will govern us, go out in front of us, plead our case and cause and fight our battles. If only this man or that woman could be elected, everything would be better. If only this law or that policy could be passed, everything would be great. Now again, there are genuine disagreements about these things and you are free to thoughtfully believe and engage, promoting the people and policies and ideas that you think will lead to a better tomorrow, whatever party or anything they happen to be affiliated with. Again, I don't really care where you land so long as you land there thoughtfully. But the danger, the danger here is idolatry. The danger is engaging like the other nations, like everyone else. 
The danger is forgetting who and whose you are. To be abundantly clear, this nation in which we reside is included in that list of other nations. For again, as Peter reminds us, we, church, are a nation called to proclaim the mighty acts of our God with dignity and honor. Or as he says in the next two verses, 11 through 12, Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life in your neighborhood so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. The way we conduct ourselves in this world is our prophetic witness, which leads to God being glorified. So you are free to engage if you feel so led, but you must always do so with dignity and honor. You must always be mindful of the ever-present temptation to be like other nations, like everyone else. You must always be mindful of the alluring drift towards tribalism, of projecting your hopes and fears onto a person or idea. In this, we are demonstrating our trust in God. Like Israel, near the end of Samuel's life, it may look and feel to you like everything is falling apart, like everything you know is coming crashing down. But be mindful of where your hope is. Remember who and whose you are. In the kingdom of God, you are safe, but you must trust. Now, the good news in all this is that God used Israel's desire for a king like the other nations to bring about King David and ultimately our King Jesus, a man and idea, the kingdom of God, that we're not only allowed but commanded to project our hopes and fears onto. The good news is that even when we fail, even when we reject him, when we forget who and whose we are, God remembers And God meets us where we are and can bring something good from it. The consistent challenge for us then is to continue to trust him, to take up residence in him, to dwell in the kingdom of God. Maybe you aren't caught up in the current political theater. This applies to so much more than how we conduct ourselves in politics. We've just been talking about Israel's desire for a king, and politics is just an easy and obvious target here. But maybe for you, there's an important family decision, or a business opportunity, or something going on at work, or a relationship in disrepair. In those spaces, too, be mindful of how you conduct yourself and what that says about where your faith and trust live. What that says about who you are whose you are. Whether we're talking about kings, business, family, or whatever other thing may come your way, the temptation to be like the other nations, like everyone else, to live according to the pattern of this world will always be there, like sin crouching at the door, desiring to have you. But we are called to be different, unique, peculiar even, to embody the love of God to the world and point them to Jesus. And thanks to the arrival of the Pentecost Spirit of God, we celebrated a couple of weeks ago, 
we have been empowered to do exactly this if we will apprentice ourselves to Jesus to learn from him to learn how to do the kinds of things he did and said to do but that choice is ours and we must make it